Grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast bringing you true crime from around the world. host Cambo, grab a beer and pull up a deck chair. This is True Crime Island, another true crime podcast. So Islanders, last episode we had a bit of a wild ride as I told you about Christopher Wilder's earlier years in Australia and how he left to go back to the United States after things got a bit hot for him, especially with the Wanda Beach murders where his estranged wife and her mother had approached police with information that may have linked him to the horrific event. Also, I talked about how he continued to use his modelling scam to lure young women into compromising positions, photographing them in the nude, and then raping them. He seemed to be able to evade justice either totally or with very light sentences, and even though he came close many times to going to jail, he didn't, and he just went back to doing what he was doing. Now, my references tonight, there's a few more. It's Megan Good of The Charlie Project, uh, News Press of Fort Myers, Miami News, Miami Herald, and The Palm Beach Post. Also, The Snapshot Killer by Duncan McNabb. And one last reference, Laurie Johnson's blog. So, nowadays we have Tinder say grinder, plenty of fish and all that, well, back in the day, you could also go to a studio and make your own videotape. The service would have all these tapes on hand and you could order a compilation of those tapes of the type of people you'd like to meet. You'd buy the tape, they'd send it to you in the post, you'd have a, a watch of it, and then you'd let the company know which person you'd be interested in. Well, Wilder did this in a 1981 dating video. Now, he talked a lot about himself and he said that he wanted a long relationship but not marriage and he was into water skiing and surfing. He was looking for someone with depth and sincerity in their early 20s. The reality is he never surfed or water skied. He wanted a woman that would always be home for him and wouldn't question his whereabouts and probably just needed a maid with benefits. This video would become useful to the FBI a couple of years later. In late 1982, Wilder went back to Australia to visit his parents. He continued his modelling scam while there. And on the 28th of December 1982, Wilder approached two 15-year-old girls at Manly Beach, telling them they could become models and offering to do a photo shoot of them. He took them in his car to Mossman, forced them to pose nude, He took photos, then drove them to King's Cross, where he indecently assaulted them. Now, he did release them, and they went to police. He was arrested and charged with entice with intention to hold an indecent assault. But he was able to post bail, which was set at a huge amount, $400,000. Now, this was made up of $200,000 from his parents, $150,000 from his uncle, and 50000 from Wilder himself. Now, this allowed him to return to the United States on condition he returned for his committal hearing on May the 7th, 1983. 
Now, that date was pushed back to the 4th of August 1983, and he did return and fronted up at Manly Court for the two-day hearing. Now, this is a committal hearing, and it's to see whether there's enough evidence for a full trial. The committee committal hearing dragged on, and it was clear that the amount of witnesses that the prosecution had could not be cross-examined in the two days set aside. Now, as it was approaching the end of the year, the only dates that the judge had free would be into early 1984, and the committal hearing would recommence on the 3rd of April 1984. As Wilder had complied with his bail conditions previously, this was continued, and he left Australia and returned to the United States. Now, just a side note to this, the FBI believed Wilder was responsible for the rape of a young girl in San Mateo in San Francisco on his way to Australia for that committal hearing, and we will get into other cases he was suspected of at the end of the episode. Now, this is where things get really crazy. Now, Wilder knows that he's probably going to go to prison if he returns to Australia, It's highly likely his case will go to court and highly likely that he will be found guilty and do do time and doing time inside is one of the things Wilder fears most. Now, back in Florida, Wilder continued his ways. His wealth was increasing and he tried to show off that wealth to those around him. He had a huge fake diamond ring, designer label clothes and nice cars. He would often be seen with two escorts when he went out and he wasn't shy to admit they were escorts, commenting to some that they were $150 an hour or so each. He thought this was cool, but most people would keep their distance and it brought him no new friends. His business partner wasn't impressed by him either. Wilder would go out to do jobs and demand an upfront payment. So when his business partner invoiced the client, Well, they'd come back to him telling them that they'd already paid an amount to Wilder. At times, Wilder would disappear for days and not answer his pager. On his return, Wilder would tell his business partner that he'd been in Daytona, always Daytona, and wouldn't elaborate on it. He was now racing his Porsche and had a small team behind him. And this is where things start to get out of control. The first person I want to tell you about is Elizabeth or Beth Kenyon, the daughter of the founder of Kenyon's Variety Convenience Store. Now, with hard work, the store expanded and became quite profitable. Beth got a teaching degree in Florida and was a cheerleader. She worked with special needs kids and did a bit of modelling. She was described as not only beautiful on the outside, but also on the inside. She was pretty good at sports and went to church. She was a careful dater, only going out with guys she met through her friends. In 1982, she was in a Lowenbrow beer commercial and worked at Daytona Beach Races. She was in the New Year's Eve Orange Bowl float in Miami and she was on the first float and the event was televised nationally. She was a finalist in the 1983 Miss Florida pageant held in October of 1982 Now, this is where she would meet Christopher Wilder. He was in modelling scam mode, put on his Aussie accent. (laughs) That's my American accent. Put on his Aussie accent and told her he was a photographer for the Aussie magazine Pix. Now, Pix was a trashy tabloid-type mag with articles about scandals and had plenty of pictures of girls wearing hardly anything. You'd always see it, say, in mechanics' bathrooms. 
Now, Wilder had fake media credentials to get into the pageant, and being fake Australian credentials, they weren't closely checked by the event's organisers. So when he approached some of the girls at the event who were young and naive, Wilder came across as genuine. Now, he met Beth Kenyon at the pageant and gave her his usual spiel about being a photographer and modelling agent, and within days, he was dating her. Not only did he play up his Aussie accent, but also the fact that he raced cars, as she had worked at the Daytona Beach races in the past. Now, Wilder was very interested in Beth romantically, and they dated often, but he never pushed her into nude photography or tried to rape her like he did with the other women. Wilder wasn't her type either, and with the age gap, she was happy to be his friend, but not a girlfriend. Now, I think Wilder was going for a long-term relationship with Beth, seeing as though he had been single for quite a while. As I said in part one, he seemed to need a woman at home to take care of the house and be there for him, while he could then go out and commit horrendous acts on other women. Beth even told her mum that photographers usually try to get nudes out of her, but Wilder hadn't, and that he was a perfect gentleman. He even proposed to her, even though they had never kissed. Now, Beth declining his marriage proposal didn't faze him at all, and they remained friends. He organised modelling work for her at the 1984 Miami Grand Prix, where he would be racing his Porsche. This would be held in the last week of February. Now, she did decline the offer, as she was already working that weekend in New York. Now, hold on. This case is about to go into overdrive. Some of the following is directly from the Charlie Project, but edited for flow, just a little bit here and there. February 26, 1984, Rosario Gonzalez went missing after working as a promotions girl at the Miami Grand Prix. She was handing out aspirin samples to the racegoers. Rosario was an aspiring model at the time of her disappearance and had participated in the Miss Florida Beauty Contest along with Elizabeth Kenyon. Rosario was last seen at the Miami Grand Prix racetrack where she earned 200 a day doing her promotional work. Witnesses state that she left the Grand Prix track between noon and 1pm on February the 26th with a Caucasian man in his 30s. Her blue 1980 Oldsmobile Cutlass was found parked near DuPont Plaza. Rosario was supposed to return home between 5 and 6pm and she usually called whenever she was going to be late. She's never been heard from again. She resided with her parents in Homestead, Florida, 23 miles from Miami. Then just six days later, Elizabeth Kenyon, the friend of Wilder that I spoke about before, disappeared after leaving her job at Coral Gables High School where she worked teaching special needs children. Now, this was around 3 p.m. on March the 5th, 1984. She spoke with security guards before driving off in her Chrysler convertible. Apparently, she was spotted talking to a man who drove a Cadillac Eldorado, and this was at a service station, servo or gas station, on the 8th of March. This guy was identified as Wilder when shown a photo of him by police. Her car was found abandoned at Miami International Airport on March the 11th. She didn't have plans to travel and had not packed to go anywhere, and her name wasn't listed on any flights going out of Miami. Both Rosario and Beth have never been found. 
Now, at the time, reports of missing young women weren't always taken serious by police. Too often they would chase around town only to find the missing person had gone off for a few days. But when Rosario and Beth went missing only days apart and they both had links to Wilder, plus the determination of Beth's parents in hiring a private eye, this got police taking the missing person's report more seriously. Now, they did interview Wilder, but he said he hadn't seen Beth for at least a month or so. Now, this gave Wilder a head start, and he skipped town after this link between the two missing women was published in a newspaper. On the 15th of March, 15-year-old Colleen Osborne went missing after leaving her Daytona Beach home. Now, Wilder was staying at a motel in the area at the time. Her body was found a few weeks later in a shallow grave near a lake in Orange County. She was not formally identified until 2011. On March the 18th, he lured 21-year-old Teresa, or Terry Ferguson, away from Merritt Island Mall in Satellite Beach and murdered her. Her body was found in Polk County in a canal in Canaveral Groves on March the 23rd. Then there's a phone call to the FBI. A girl had been kidnapped on March 20 and she'd escaped her abductor. It was 19-year-old Linda Grover who Wilder abducted from Governor's Square Mall in Tallahassee, Florida and drove her across state lines to Bainbridge, Georgia. He did the modelling scam with her. She resisted going back to his studio, so he knocked her out and shoved her in his car. He dragged her from the car at gunpoint, then tried to strangle her in the trunk of the car or the boot for us Aussies. She woke up in a sleeping bag at the Glen Oaks Motel. Now, Wilder tied her to the bed and super glued her eyes shut. He raped her, beat her and electrocuted her. She was able to, I guess it's not electrocute, but he used these wires on her body that he could plug into the wall. Now, she was able to break free and she locked herself in the bathroom, made heaps of noise, started screaming for help and she was banging on the doors and walls. Wilder fled with all her belongings and Linda was able to identify him in a photo lineup. Now, because he took her over state lines, the FBI got involved and he made their most wanted list. On the 21st of March, Wilder met 23-year-old mother and nursing student Terry Walden in Beaumont, Texas, again in a shopping mall. He tried the modelling scam on her, but she turned him down. Two days later, on the 23rd, he saw her at the mall. She again turned him down when he asked her to do a photo shoot, so he attacked her near her car in the car park, knocked her out and shoved her in the back of her Mercury Cougar. He grabbed all his stuff from his car and drove off in her Cougar. She was reported missing and her body was found floating in a canal on the 26th of March. She had been stabbed 43 times in the breast. Wilder's car would be found at that mall car park and in it was hair from Teresa Ferguson. You see, back in the day, it was quite difficult to track someone like Wilder. He'd taken a large amount of money from his bank before going on the run and if he did use his credit card, they used the old click-clack machines and only purchases over $100 would be called in. Now, Wilder did use his business partner's stolen credit card, but stayed in motels that were under the $100 limit, so they wouldn't be reconciled for maybe a couple of days. By the time police had a new lead from these credit card transactions, Wilder had already moved on. 
On March the 25th, Wilder abducted 21-year-old Suzanne Logan at the Penn Square Mall in Oklahoma City and drove her 180 miles north to Newton, Kansas. He took her to a motel room where he raped her and tortured her all night. Wilder then drove to Junction City about 90 miles away where he stabbed her to death, dumping her body in the Milford Reservoir. On the night of March the 28th, he used a stolen visa card at the motel to check into. Now, the bill was called in because it did exceed $100. Now, when the amount got knocked back because it was a stolen credit card, and like I said, stolen from his business partner, police and FBI raided the hotel early the next morning, but Wilder had already fled. Later in the day, on March the 29th, 18-year-old Cheryl Bonaventura was abducted by Wilder in Grand Junction, Colorado. Well, abducted, he lured her in to start with. Now, witnesses saw them together at a diner in Silverton. They told staff that they were headed for Las Vegas. Cheryl was shot and stabbed to death sometime around March the 31st in Utah. Her body would be found on May the 5th near the Kanab River. On the 1st of April, 17-year-old Michelle Kaufman disappeared from a fashion show at the Meadows Mall in Las Vegas. Police had asked all photographers at that show for their photographs. Now, in one photo, Wilder is seen in the background watching the show. Her body was found on May the 13th near a Southern California road stop. Wilder's next victim would be 16-year-old Tina Marie Rossico. She'd been applying for a job at Hickory Farms north of Torrance, California, when Wilder spotted her. He did the modelling scam to lure her in offering her $100 to take photos of her. Now, he did take some photos and then she wanted to go home. He pulled a gun on her and told her that her modelling days were over before taking her to a hotel in El Centro. Here, he tied her to the bed and raped her. Now, she had a boyfriend and family. They noticed her missing straight away and police were notified. The store manager at Hickory Farms identified Wilder as the guy that had approached her in the store. Now, Wilder didn't kill Tina, instead he used her as he'd done before to lure in other girls. She was scared for her life and did anything she could to stay alive. They went to Taos in New Mexico on the 7th of April and Wilder's name and face were beginning to appear in newspapers and on TV and I hope I pronounced that location right, I'm sure I'll get emails. Even They even had the dating videotape that he'd made playing on the nightly news. Now, I think at this stage, Wilder knew it wouldn't be long before there would be some sort of showdown between him and the authorities. And this probably saved Tina's life, as he could use her to get women and stay in the background away from public view. Wilder wasn't going to go into hiding, he was going to rape and kill while he still had the chance. 16-year-old Dornette Wilt had been applying for a job at Southlake Mall, Gary, Indiana. She was approached by Tina who told her that she could speak to the manager about the job and that he was outside. Dornette followed Tina and Wilder pulled a gun on her and forced her in the back seat of the car. Tina drove while Wilder taped her eyes and mouth then repeatedly raped her in the back seat. They drove to Ohio where they stayed for the night while Wilder again raped Dornette, threatening both girls to stay quiet and not to attempt to escape or he would kill them both. 
The next day, they drove through Pennsylvania and into New York State, where they stopped at Niagara Falls. It's here that Wilder saw Tina's parents on TV, pleading for her safe return. He again got Tina to drive to a wooded area in Penyan, and that's not far from Niagara Falls. Here, Wilder forced Dornette out of the car and marched her into the woods. He tried to strangle her, but she fought him off too well. He stabbed her once in the front and once in the back. Donette went limp and Wilder got back in the car and he and Tina drove off. Now, not satisfied that she was actually dead, Wilder returned to where he had left Dornette and was stunned when he saw that she was gone. Luckily, she'd played dead when he left her and she was able to get help from a passing motorist and was taken to hospital where she survived. She told police that Wilder was headed for Canada and that he wasn't planning on being taken alive. Wilder and Tina's next stop was Eastview Mall in Victor, New York on April the 12th. Here in the parking lot, he saw 33-year-old Beth Dodge getting out of her gold Pontiac Trans Am. He got Tina to lure her over to his stolen Cougar, where he took Beth's keys and forced her into the back. Tina was told to follow in Beth's Trans Am. They drove a short distance to a gravel pit, where he forced Beth out of the car, walked her a short distance and then shot her twice in the back. He and Tina then left in the gold Pontiac Trans Am, leaving Teresa Walden's Mercury Cougar behind. Now, what's crazy about his next move is that he drives Tina to Logan Airport in Boston, buys her a ticket to LA, gives her some cash and sets her free. Tina got on the plane without telling anyone about her nine-day ordeal on the run with a crazed serial killer and landed in LA. She got a cab to a shop where she purchased some lingerie and then was spotted by friends who took her to police. Here she told police that Wilder didn't want her with him when he died, so clearly Wilder knew his time was nearly up. On Friday the 13th of April, Wilder saw a 19-year-old woman on the side of the road with a broken-down car. He offered her a lift to a gas station, which she accepted. After passing several gas stations and not stopping, she got freaked out and demanded he stop. Wilder pulled a gun on her, but she ended up jumping from the car when he had to slow down. Now Wilder drove off, dumping most of his stuff and the trophies he kept from his victims, then headed to New Hampshire. Now Friday the 13th would bring Wilder some bad luck. While stopped to gas up the car at Vic Getty's service station at the corner of Main and Bridge Streets in Colebrook, New Hampshire, Wilder was spotted by two state troopers. He was recognised from the FBI Most Wanted posters and they stopped their car and got out and approached him. Now Wilder saw this and he reached into his car to grab his gun. Leo Jellison, one of the troopers, jumped on Wilder's back grabbing for the gun a three fifty seven Magnum. Now, two shots were fired. One went through Wilder into Jellison's chest, lodging in his liver. The second went into Wilder's heart, killing him instantly. Rosario Gonzalez had gone missing on February the 26th, and it was now 47 days later, and Wilder had been on the run for 26 of those days and covered about 7,000 miles or around 11,000-odd kilometres. He went from one side of the country in Miami to the other side, California, and back across to the other side to New York. In Wilder's possession, police found a 357 Magnum, Magnum, extra ammo, 
handcuffs, rolls of duct tape, rope, the electrical cord he used to zap his victims, and a sleeping bag. This was all of his kidnapping, torture, and murder kit. He also had his business partner's stolen credit card and a novel by British author John Fowles called The Collector. Now, this novel tells of an entomologist, I'll get that out in a minute, entomologist who collects butterflies. He also kidnaps an art student called Miranda and keeps her in his basement. He gives her everything she wants except her freedom. Now, Wilder knew this novel almost off by heart, and it seemed to almost be his fantasy, I suppose, I don't know. Now, Rosario Gonzalez and Beth Kenyon's both assumed to be Wilder's victims and obviously presumed dead, and like I said before, their bodies have never been found. Although Wilder is known to have killed at least eight women, he's thought to have killed many more. The Wanda Beach murders where Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrick were killed, that was in 1985 and maybe they were his first. In 1979, the body of Tammy Alexander was found in a field in Caledonia, New York. She had been shot in the back of the head and suffered blunt force trauma about her head. She wasn't identified actually until 2015 and she had gone missing from Brooksville. Because she was found with an autosport jacket, it's thought Wilder may have been involved because he wore the same brand when he was racing his Porsche. Mary Hare disappeared on February the 11th, 1981 from a parking lot in Fort Myers, Florida. Five days later, 17-year-old Mary Opitz disappeared from the same parking lot. Mary Hare's body was found in June of 1981. She'd been stabbed in the back. On the 27th of June 1983, Shari Lynn Ball left home in Florida and told her parents she was going to New York to start a modelling career but first she would be going to Bonton Beach to meet a friend, then return to pack. A few hours later, she called her mum asking to borrow money. Now, this would be the last time her mum would hear from her. She never came home for her bags or the money. She did call her boyfriend a few days later, telling him she was on her way to New York with a friend. Now, this was the last time he heard from her. Her parents reported her missing, but this wasn't taken serious by police. By October, her parents again went to police and now she was listed as a missing person. On the 6th of July 1983, Tammy Lynn Leppard, a model, actress and beauty queen, disappeared. She'd won 280 of the 300 contests she'd entered. She was even in Scarface the movie, Spring Break and Little Darlings. Tammy was last seen near her home in Cocoa Beach, Florida. She was acting a bit weird the days before she went missing, telling friends she would be going away soon. She was getting a lift with a friend when they had an argument and she demanded her friend stop so she could get out of the car. She got out at the glass bank near Cocoa Beach. Tammy made a few unanswered calls to her aunt that day and was never seen again. She was reported missing on the 11th of July. The surviving police report said she'd been recently introduced to a white male in his late 30s who made movies but had a reputation for getting into trouble with young girls. Now, this is believed to be Wilder. 25th of May 1983, Robin Melanie Adler disappeared in the same area. She'd left her boyfriend's house in Lochahatchee and was driving south to Bennigan's Lounge in Tamarack near her home. 
1977 Red Salika was found crashed with the battery missing on a dirt road near Royal Palm Beach. Her body was never found. Now Wilder was living in the area at the time, so he may have been involved. Nancy K. Brown, a 25-year-old from Rantoul, Illinois, disappeared from Cocoa Beach while on holidays on the 6th of June 1983. Her remains were discovered in Canaveral Groves in March of 1984. July 1983, two young girls were abducted off Bonton Beach, driven away from the area and brutally assaulted. The girls told police the guy that picked them up said he was a photographer who worked for a modelling agency and offered to take them to a studio for a photo shoot. When they got in the car, he pulled a gun on them. He took them to a desolate place and raped them, and they were only 10 and 12 years old. He hadn't disguised himself, but still, after the attack, he drove them back to Bonton Beach, but demanded their home address and phone number. They told their parents, who contacted police. They would then get calls at their home by a man asking to talk to the 12-year-old. It was the same person that had attacked her. She recognised the voice. Later, Wilder would be identified as the perpetrator. Now, in this case, it looks like the girl's mum had met with Wilder at a bar before the attack and meeting the girls that day was no chance encounter. He'd actually stalked them for quite a while before he attacked them. The Broward County Jane Doe, aged between 18 and 35, was found floating in a canal on February the 18th, 1984, in Davie, Florida. This murder fits Wilder's M.O. and he was nearby at the time. Now, there may be more victims of Christopher Wilder. Certainly, there must be many more that he raped but never came forward to police. He spent his whole adult life raping, molesting and murdering young women, avoiding prison as he went. There was a lot of if-onlys in this story. He could have been stopped many times along the way of his 20-year crime spree. Probably the most crucial, if only, was when Wilder's first wife and mother-in-law went to police with information regarding their suspicions that he was the Wanda Beach murderer. Now, what information they did have seems to be lost to time, but if he had been picked up and thoroughly interviewed then, maybe he would have been found to be the murderer and his trail of dead women would have stopped there. We'll never really know if it was him. Maybe some evidence will be uncovered someday to solve those murders. He was named the Snapshot Killer, the Beauty Queen Killer, and the Cross Country Killer. Really, he was just scum. Okay, so that's the end of that crazy case. What a wild ride that was. I think he's been one of the worst of the worst I've covered and he just kept getting away with his crimes until it escalated out of control and he went on this killing spree knowing his time was nearly up. Now, researching this, it was just name after name, photo after photo, and plotting the map on the Google was crazy. You see, he did like endurance driving, so he just kept going and going. The FBI and police were always a step behind. Okay, so that's it for this week. So before I go, a big shout out again to all my Patreons. Uh, Not too savvy, Sabrina, Cheryl Green, Ellie Hamilton, Dirk Embury, Sharon May, 
You know, True Crime Island is a free podcast and free for all. So thank you to those new Patreons. If you'd like to help out, go to patreon.com forward slash True Crime Island. It really does help keep the lights on. If you want to buy me a beer, you can shout me out on uh, paypal.me forward slash True Crime Island as John Kelly did for my Christmas Prezi this week. Thanks, John. I think I'll be able to grab a whole case of beer with that one. Boom, fucker, langa. Now, there's links to merch, social media, and on my and my YouTube channel. That's on the website, truecrimeisland.com, where you can also mail me. Thanks for everyone who bought merch this week as well. This week, I've got two promos. I'll keep it short. First is a fun time horror show with Tommy Bell. Give it a listen. I'm sure you'll like it. Also is Stalking Australia, a new podcast about stalking. You should check that out as well. I'll leave it up to the promos themselves for a deeper description, both at the end of the outro. So, I've been your host, Cambo. You've been listening to True Crime Island. And as I always say, don't forget to delete your browser history. Merry Christmas and Bumfagalanga. Welcome to the Fun Time Horror Show. I'm your host, Tommy Bell. Don't let the name deceive you as nothing about our stories are much fun. In this podcast, we'll discuss true life horrors across the board. This show should be a good mix of stories covering true crime, haunted houses, cannibals, serial killers, cults. It doesn't really matter to us. If you like the macabre, horror, violence, general grossness, well, this is your show. We also refuse to stick to a format as to keep things feeling fresh and interesting. The plan is to release one new episode every two weeks, so we hope to see you then. Remember, that's the Fun Time Horror Show. No kids allowed, and listener discretion is extremely advised. Stalking is prevalent in Australia. There are hundreds of cases reported every year. These people's existence have been besieged by a stalker. Survivors often are voiceless and have no place to tell their stories. This podcast has given a voice to those victims, a place to tell their stories. Hopefully we can help others who are in this terrible situation to fight back. I'm Mark McMahon and this is Stalking Australia. That's Not Kind of Productions podcast.